I'm always impressed how God goes ahead of us in terms of sermon subjects, in terms of knowing what's going to be happening in our lives and in the life of our nation. And it seems very appropriate this morning that the subject about judging and loving is appropriate for what's happening nationally. Our goal in this church is to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This theme of our pulpit this year is to embrace God's unconditional love and then share it. And all of that has everything to do with what's going on in our country. And I felt that it would be appropriate before we proceed with the sermon for us to do what Christians do best when we're up against things that we can't do anything about individually. And that is when we come together and pray, we're doing, actually exerting the most leverage of any citizen in the country about our election. And I would just believe when we think of Veterans Day having just passed and the millions that have died to give us the freedom of our nation. We have a country where we can transfer power without going into the streets and shooting each other. And I, I rejoice in that, and yet we shouldn't take it for granted. And it feels so appropriate now for this morning for us just to take a few moments together as the body of Christ and pray that the peace of Jesus will prevail, that people will come together, and that even after this is settled, we'll have a new unity in our country that could begin right here because some of us sit here with very different opinions on the issues going on. Let's pray together to Jesus for a moment. Lord, we call you the Prince of Peace, and we claim your peace for our nation today. We've had weeks of such slander and anger and words that tear down, and we need healing. We need this wound closed. We pray first that you will bring a just settlement to the election confusion, and then, Lord, even beginning with us, heal our nation and bring us back together and make us a nation of justice. May we count and evaluate and then treasure the, what it means to be a free country. We thank you for those who gave their lives to make it possible. And we thank you for the gift now of being able to be your emissaries of love in the worlds we touch. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus said something that I find very unnerving. He said, if we're shrewd in discovering defects in others and judging them, then that same criteria we use to judge others will be used to judge us. In fact, Jesus called our habit of judging others sin. In fact, he goes on to say that the splinter we see in our neighbor's eye is only a reflection of the log that's in our own. Critical, judgmental words so often dominate our conversations, don't they? Even among, maybe particularly among Christians, where our habit seems to always be kind of scrutinizing each other. We do, do it even as we, people walk into church, or as uh, Doug was telling me, people evaluate what we wear and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're always evaluating rather than loving produces, I guess, a kind of perverted satisfaction when we think about the worst in people. Maybe that's the innate sin in all of us. Oswald Chambers had it right in saying, I never met the person I could despair of after discerning what lies in me apart from the grace of God. That's the true posture of one who's encountered the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Our culture, particularly in these weeks before the election, has become obsessed with scrutinizing and judging and condemning and exposing. And all we've heard this is for months, we're weeks. And it, it kind of gets to us. It can even infect us. And no wonder James would warn us, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. Or as Paul the Apostle said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. What a beautiful nation we'd have if we used our words to build up and to meet people's needs. So for a few moments, we're going to allow the scripture to speak to our hearts on this issue of our tendency to judge rather than to love. And here's the one truth we're going to consider today. A divine intervention must happen to enable us to stop judging and begin to love others. Our text says no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Why do so many Christians feel it's our personal responsibility to redesign and change people? Why do many Christians have the reputation of being arrogant and hypocritical and unloving and legalistic? In fact, why do so many unchurched people feel uncomfortable around Christians? I sometimes feel uncomfortable around Christians who scrutinize, <laughs> don't you? You know, I hate that part of me that focuses on a person's brokenness rather than on their worth in God's sight. And I do it, and I'm so frustrated because for years I wanted God to conquer that in me. And I get very convicted when Jesus said, my words reflect my heart. These aren't just fluff coming out of my mouth. It's part of me. That's who I am. That really gets me. I don't want to be a person preoccupied with scrutinizing people, searching for their dark side. I am convinced after years of struggle that um, willpower isn't going to cure me. It will be dependent upon Jesus changing my heart and filling it with his love. So you see, only the love of Jesus in our hearts enable us to begin to see persons as he sees them. Persons in need of compassion and mercy and encouragement, not judgment. Here, here's everything I'm saying this morning. Our task as followers of Jesus is to love people. God's task is to change them, and we should never get those two confused. And when we do, and we have as evangelical Christians, we drive people away from Jesus rather than bring them to him. I'm fascinated when Paul came to minister to that decadent city of Corinth. He looked for new ways in which to wrap the message of our Lord's love so these irreligious ears could hear. And he wrote, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel. You see, Paul's agenda was never to impose his morality and theology and doctrine on people fresh out of a steamy, sinful environment like Corinth. People who couldn't talk church talk, who didn't understand theology, they only knew one thing. They knew they were sick, they knew they were in bondage to sin, and they knew they needed a divine physician, and they didn't need judgment. So a question emerges, how can we open our hearts wide enough 
to embrace people whose lifestyles are contrary to what we believe, who don't dress like we dress, talk like we talk, think like we think. How can we recover from this disease of judging others? How can we make this church a place where anyone of any cultural, ethnic, or moral background could come into these doors and just feel part of us simply because they're persons for whom Christ died? Dream with me a moment. Suppose the Holy Spirit would so fill our church family with Christ's love that this would become a place known where people with all kinds of brokenness and needs and sins would feel welcome, embraced, accepted, and loved. And a place where people would be free to journey from where they are toward all that God calls them to become, but in an environment of not judgment, but embracing, encouraging love. What a world that would be. That's the church. Now, why is such freedom important? Because unchurched persons are not so different from us. We were all unchurched at one time. All of us have had some kind of major failure in our lives. All of us still need daily doses of divine grace to cover our sins. I certainly do. All of us are still in process. God isn't finished with anyone yet. So why should anybody feel they don't measure up, they don't fit in here? I want to suggest some st steps that might help us Focus on loving rather than judging. Listening. If Christ's love gets a hold of our hearts, we'll allow our schedules to be interrupted by God so we can just be with a person who's struggling. You know, so often when people are in a mess, maybe of their own creation, when they face challenges, we so often, I so often, we want to come and fix it. Or we might offer some sound advice or diagnosis of why they got in this condition and sort of you're telling them it's your own fault, get over it. But listening is far different. It means we don't come with advice. We don't come with a fix-it prescription. We're just willing to be present with a person in their pain. And you know what I've discovered through the years? Talking with countless people who've been through the depths of life. What do they need most when they're in the midst of it? Not advice, not a prescription for cure. They value most those persons who kind of just came and sat with them and they were there as a supporting body of love. As we, in other words, they walked through the crisis with them. They were just a friend. They didn't try to fix it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, anyone who thinks his or her time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet with another will have no time for God or his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. In busy Silicon Valley, where we have a mindset that technology will fix everything, where our mindset is to fix it or ignore it, what a fresh breath of love's air <laughs> to be told that if we just listen, that's Christ's love in action. Now, secondly, get involved. Now, this isn't a contradiction. This doesn't mean to be a fixer. The Bible says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. As the love of Jesus fills our hearts, rather than view a person's struggle or mess as a result of their bad choices, we begin to sacrificially give of ourselves and our resources to bring healing a chance for a new beginning, and we don't stand off and say, well, gee, if they just hadn't screwed up, they wouldn't be in this mess anyway, so why should I help them? What if Jesus had said that to us in our mess? No, 
What we come is we come and just say, I'm available and my resources are available to help you regardless of how you got into the mess because that's how Jesus deals with us. You see, we never give up on a person because God never gives up on us. And I say, thank God. And so as we talk about our church family touching this community, as we talk about us becoming a deployment church, I trust our stories will increasingly be people stories. They'll be Ron's stories like we heard today. People who were broken in need and they came here and and through Christ's love uh, kind of flowing through us, They got up again after life had knocked them down. They got a new beginning after they had no hope of a new beginning. Those are the kind of stories that make a church great. Not buildings, not budget, not size. But it's when people like you and I, energized by the Holy Spirit, go out and dare to get involved with people where they are because we're there as Jesus sends us. You know, it's neat to know that after life has knocked us down, the love of Jesus in control of our hearts can be the means by which they're lifted up. You know, I enjoyed the movie Patch Adams. It's a true story about a doctor who broke through the impersonal professionalism separating doctor and patient in the hospital where he was interning. He believed people needed love in the form of personal touch as much as they needed medicine. So much so that he put personal involvement with people at the top of his agenda with amazing therapeutic results. You know, I would offer to you without sounding like a heretic, long before we give them a theology, long before we pull their lapels and ask them if they know the four spiritual laws or any of the other gimmicks that we have for trying to maneuver people into the kingdom of God. If we give them our concern and our love and our care first, then just maybe they'll be attracted to the love of Jesus that's in our hearts. It's important we understand as followers of Jesus that whenever we encounter brokenness in people due to their bad choices, We always need to whisper in our own hearts, there but for the grace of God go I. And the longer I live, the easier it is for me to say that. And the longer I live, the less tendency I have to judge others. You see, when we get involved with helping others without passing judgment on what led to their situation, we become what scripture calls the fragrance of Jesus Christ's love. So here's the challenge of the message this morning. Stop judging, criticizing, evaluating. And focus on loving by knocking down the fences that separate us from those we tend to judge. The fence of indifference, which prevents us from feeling responsible for being part of God's plan to heal our neighbor. The fence of preoccupation, preventing us from communicating that we're interested in people's needs rather than just our own. And the fence of judgment, that shuts people out by appearance, mannerisms, initial impressions, their lifestyle. A year ago, if you remember, Brennan Manning was our speaker at uh, Mount Hermon family camp. That guy's had a permanent impression on my life. In fact, he's going to be with us next summer preaching. He told a story I'll never forget. He was a priest, is a priest, was stricken with alcoholism, ended up in Florida on the street as a falling down drunk by his own admission. And he said that during that whole I guess it was a year and a half period. He was sitting on a curb, just washed out with uh, booze. And this friend flew in once a week, every week, came and sat with him on the curb, didn't say anything condemning, put his arm around him and says, Brennan, you and God are going to make this. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. And I thought, 
That's what we're talking about here. That's non-judgmental love. And Brennan said that is the hand of Jesus that brought him out of the gutter back into the ministry. And now he's touching lives because he was touched with non-judgmental love at a time when anybody who is a legalistic Christian, how could you, a priest, get involved with alcoholism sitting in the gutter? You must have done something wrong. How refreshing to have Jesus in the form of a friend come and say, hey, we're going to make this. It's okay. We're going to get over it. People are not changed by judging or excluding them or evaluating them. Without condoning their behavior, we're called to be up close, to be available to help them out of their mess. And it's not our job to try to give a, a, a diagnosis of why they're in or a prescription of how to get out. I always love it when I realize Jesus associated with known sinners and his, um, he had a lot of trouble with religious people. The only requirement for people attending this, his church, and entering into our personal circles of love and acceptance is that they want to be here. None of us are spiritually superior to those outside who come here searching for a relationship with God. The only difference between a seeker and a believer is that we've discovered the healing grace of Jesus. And now we have the joy, the opportunity of sharing it with those who haven't discovered it yet. How can I put this into a maybe a, a package we'll remember. I, I like novelist Frederick Beekner, and he gives a historical perspective of the motley crew God has selected from the beginning. And maybe this will help us understand what we're saying today. Who could have predicted that God would choose Noah, Noah who hit the bottle, or Moses, who was trying to beat the rap in Midian for braining a man in Egypt? And of course, there's the comedy of the election itself. Of all the peoples he could have chosen to be his holy people, he chose the Jews, who, as somebody has said, are just like everybody else, only more so. More religious than anybody when they're religious and when they were secular, being secular as if they invented it. Even after Jesus came, the pattern continued. The two disciples who did most to spread the word after his departure, John and Peter, were the two he rebuked most often for petty squabbling and muddle-headedness. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote more books than any other Bible writer, was selected for the task while kicking up dust swirls from town to town, sniffing out Christians to torture. Jesus had nerve, entrusting the high-minded ideals of love and unity and fellowship to this group. No wonder cynics have looked at the church and sighed, if that group of people is supposed to represent God, I'll quickly vote against him. And yet our study of the body of Christ must allow for this impossible dream for all we are is a collection of people as diverse as the cells in the human body. And I think of the churches I've known, is there another institution in town with such a mosaic assortment of unlikes? Young radicals uniformed in jeans share the pews with Republican bankers in three-piece suits. Bored teachers tune out the sermon. I mean, bored, bored teenagers tune out the sermon. <laughs> ah, nuts. <laughs> I thought I was gonna get by one time at 9.30 without doing this. Bored teenagers tune out the sermon even as their eager grandparents turn up their hearing aids. I could easily cluck my tongue at the absurdity of the whole enterprise, seemingly doomed to fail. But Jesus prayed that we may be one as he and God the Father are one. How can any organism composed of such diversity attain even a semblance of unity? And as the doubts rumble inside of me, a sober and quieting voice replies, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. God is the one in sending Jesus Christ 
that created this motley crew called the church. And if we know who we are, how could we possibly exclude anyone? In an interview with Anne Lamott, a very, quote, real Christian writer whose brokenness has led her to love, not judge, responded as follows to those who tend to judge her non-traditional witness to Jesus. She writes, I understand how desperately I'm in need of a savior. All I know is that even when I try my best, I could screw up right and left and I'm still forgiven. I love that. I love you this way, God says. But I think it would be less painful for you if you were slightly different. So we might want to work on that together. Isn't that just like God? And isn't it his job to do the changing, to, the, to, to do the working? And our job is to provide the environment where that work can happen. You see, our task is to love people. God's passion and power is to, love, to, to change them. Let that truth dominate our relationships this week in the part of the world you touch in this time of crisis in our country where there's so much division. You see, we get to go forth armed this week with the amazing, indescribable, incomprehensible love of our Savior. And it's that love that will heal us from the sin of judging others. And just maybe by God's grace, it'll become a virus that spreads throughout our country because it is the hope of our nation. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we'll never understand your love. We can't even share it unless you do a supernatural happening in us. Give us your heart. Give us your love. Help us to see people as you see them, worth dying for. Lord, stop us from judging. Empower us to love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.